This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Uh, good morning, everyone, <laughs> and uh, Happy New Year. New Year's Eve seems like a long time ago, longer than just a couple of weeks. I find myself very disoriented right now at this time of year with a everything going on in the world and at, in our temple, um, we were open and now we're closed. <laughs> we had lots of activity, lots of wonderful in-person Sangha activity. And now here we are back in our squares, but still we're here and I'm, I'm grateful for that. In thinking about what to talk about for this first talk of the new year for me, I went back to what I talked about last year, just almost exactly a year ago I gave a talk, and um, last year I was I was uh, kind of um, inspired by a koan that would, had been quoted by Dogen um, in a New Year's talk to his monks, and um, the line of the koan, the kind of central question, was, um, "What is the Buddha Dharma of the New Year?" And so I, I was carrying that around with me, and the talk ended up being about gratitude. So the answer that came to me last year about uh, what is the Buddha Dharma of the new year was gratitude. You know, and like a year ago, we were, we were as we still are, in the grip of COVID. At that time, we, vaccines weren't widely available. That was one of the big differences. And we were all tired. <laughs> we're still tired. <laughs> and we were apart. So here we are again. <laughs> tired and apart. We were also a few days last year, uh, just a few days past the events of January 6th, and we've just uh, marked the anniversary of, of those events. So that's, that's still resonating with me. So this year, you know, what to talk about, I decided to talk about uh, a text that I have always loved. Broadly, my topic is vow, as, uh, as the Eno said. Um, Dogen's vow. So this is, uh, I'm going to start by quoting Dogen in a vow that um, I find at least extremely helpful to remember, even when I don't feel <laughs> like there's much encouragement I can offer myself, much less others. So here it is. Dogen says, we vow with all beings from this life on throughout countless lives to hear the true Dharma that upon hearing it, no doubt will arise in us, nor will we lack in faith, that upon meeting it, we shall renounce worldly affairs and maintain the Buddha Dharma, and that in doing so, the great earth and all living beings together will attain the Buddha way. I don't think you can do much better than that. <laughs> so this is the first line of a text that is in our chant books, it's called the Ehe Koso Hotsuganmon. And um, we chant that sometimes in the morning uh, at uh, Austin Zen Center. So it may be familiar to some, at least of you. It's also chanted at the San Francisco Zen Center and other affiliated temples and centers uh, in our lineage, either as part of the regular chanting service or sometimes before lecture, right? And as I mentioned, I've always loved this text 
It's one full single space page since I first heard it, which was at the San Francisco Zen Center, actually. In my original home temple, we didn't chant it. So very inspirational and encouraging. Um, it, in, it engenders trust in me in the Buddha way. And it is also the case that uh, since I was transmitted, um, I received Dharma transmission from uh, my teacher, Galen Godwin Roshi, that um, she's asked me to chant it as part of a daily personal service every day. And she asked me to do this without knowing that I already love this text. So there's something there. <laughs> so I want to share a little bit of context after having given you this teaser of a, of a first paragraph. So this one page, one single space page of text that I'll go through over the next half an hour or so is actually an excerpt from uh, the Shobogenzo, Dogen's Collected Teachings. And I, I should have said for those of you who might be new, welcome. And Dogen is the founder of Soto Zen in Japan, 13th century of the common era. So a long time ago. So this text is from a chapter called the Keisei Sanshoku, Valley Sounds and Mountain Colors, is one translation of that title. And that chapter is a Dharma talk that Dogen gave to his monks in the year 1240. Um, so this text that we're going to be talking about today is extracted from a longer text, a much longer text. And at some point, someone, and we don't know who, and I've been asking every Zen teacher I can, uh, that I know, and some that I don't really know, if they know anything about this, at some point the idea came to somebody to turn part of this Dharma talk into a chant called the Eihei Koso Hatsuganmon. And there are some people who think this was done during Dogen's lifetime, and others say it happened later, and I'll come back to this in a minute. So what about this title, Eihei Koso Hotsuganmon? It's kind of a mouthful. It's one of those things that the Kokios who announce the chants sometimes take a look at that and kind of go, uh-oh, <laughs> it's, it's long and it's not very familiar. So Eihei Koso Hotsuganmon can be translated as Great Ancestor Eihei Dogen's Words for Arousing the Vow. That's one translation. Eihei means eternal peace. And it's the name of the mountain where Dogen established his uh, training monastery, his remote snowy <laughs> training monastery, which is called Eheiji, Eihei Temple. And Dogen is sometimes called Eihei Dogen, right? That, that's typical of, of Zen masters in Japan. They're named, they, they share the name of the mountain where they established their monasteries. So Eihei Dogen. Uh, and Dogen is also sometimes called respectfully Dogen Zenji, right? This means something like Zen Master Dogen. But after he died, Dogen received an honorary title, a post-posthumous title. And that title is Koso Joyo Daishi, High Ancestor, Bright Inheritance, Great Teacher, right? So the title of this text calls him Eihei Koso, Great or High Ancestor Eihei, Great or High Ancestor Dogen. And the word Hotsu means to arouse or to give rise to and to bring or to bring forth. 
And then we have the last word, ganmon. And that's a vow. That's a word for vow, especially a written vow, something that you write down. So we could maybe translate this title as High Ancestor Dogen's Aspiration Vow. And a ganmon can be a kind of standard form of writing or instructions, writing or teaching instructions. And we have other standard forms of teaching or writing about how things should be according to particular Zen masters. Like we have regulations for monasteries. We have Dogen's regulations for his own monastery or instructions for Zazen, right? The, the uh, Fukan Zazengi, which we chant a lot, is Dogen's instructions for how to do Zazen. And there we have many forms of these instructions from others. So sometimes teachers will just say, this is my set of instructions, right? This is mine. So it may be this vow was created or, or extracted so that there would be one from Dogen, this a vow of practice that we could all use. Um, we know of several practice vows, including by Chinese and Korean masters. And um, one of them, and they're, they're earlier than Dogen's. So this, that's one reason why we know that this is a form of writing that was practiced by other Zen masters earlier than Dogen. And I'll quote one uh, a little bit later that goes back about 500 years before Dogen. And that was just recently translated by Reverend Kokyo. So let me repeat the first line of Ehe Koso Hotsuganmon, Dogen's vow. We vow with all beings from this life on throughout countless lives to hear the true Dharma, that upon hearing it, no doubt will arise in us, nor will we lack in faith, that upon meeting it, we shall renounce worldly affairs and maintain the Buddha Dharma, and that in doing so, the great earth and all living beings together will attain the Buddha way. So there are three things on which to focus in just this first kind of long paragraph, long sentence, which is a paragraph. The first is the word vow, and then doubt and faith. Next is the idea of countless lives. And finally, the notion of renouncing worldly affairs. Those are three things in that first introductory sentence. So just to speak a little bit about vow, which is a really big topic, you know, when we vow something, we make a promise. And to me, the feeling is, is serious, a vow, right? You, you know, you swear, you're like, this is it. I'm making a vow. It's more than just like a resolution, you know, it's like really heavy. We use that word when we talk about things like marriage vows or ordination vows, right? And we mean these promises to last, you know, often all our lives, they're lifetime promises. And we have witnesses to these vows. There are documents often, and there are consequences to breaking the vows. The word devotion, though, right, this thing that comes from the heart, devotion, is related to vow. It means to act out of vow. So the vows are in our hearts. So there's this solemn promise and the feeling that we really intend not to mess up. And um, as Sojin Mel Weitzman, who died also about a year ago, that was another thing that was happening a year ago, as Mel said, breaking a vow to us feels like failure, right? The consequences, letting people down, letting ourselves down. 
So Sojin suggests that maybe we should think of vow as intention, really strong intention, which is something that we nurture inside of us, right? devoted to our intention. If we mess up, we just return to our intention and keep trying. So less of the kind of baggage that our English word vow has maybe. This idea of returning to our intention over and over again removes the feeling of guilt or condemnation when we stray from our vows. You know, it, it's not that it's nothing to forget or break our vows, but Suzuki Roshi said, and I've always taken some encouragement from this, it's better to vow to keep the precepts and break them than not to vow at all. So even Suzuki Roshi gives us this encouragement. So we vow with all beings, right? not by ourselves. And these beings are not just witnesses, right? They are vowing with us. All beings are witnesses, all beings are at stake, and all beings are vowing with us. And, and Dogen returns to these beings at the end of the sentence, right? All beings means we have lots of company in this intention. And it's not just other people either, but all beings. And although we do this, we make our vows in the present, in, what, in the now, in this lifetime, we also vow for countless lives. Now this idea of countless lives opens up, you know, all these big questions, which I don't want to take up, but which you can, maybe we can talk about at the end, about things like rebirth or reincarnation. And I don't propose to tackle them right now, but I think we can just understand the sense of vastness of unending intention when we hear about countless lives, right? An intention to practice and realize the way that is limitless and not confined in any way. So our intention to practice right now really has no beginning and no end. And the effects of our practice extend beyond what we usually think of as my life, right? My life. And I'll return to this in just a minute. So next, Dogen states the aspiration that we will have no doubt and will have faith. You know, and I don't think this means that we are not supposed to have questions or even to wonder, why am I doing this? Why am I practicing? I have other things to do. To have faith is to have confidence in the efficacy or the power of the teachings and of practice. You know, and rather to block out our questions, I think it implies trust and perseverance. And this trust seems to be instantaneous in the way Dogen talks about it, right? It is uh, upon hearing the true Dharma right away, right? We have this confidence. And I think this is because for Dogen, practice is enlightenment. You know, one moment of practice is the entire universe. Sojin, uh, I'm going to quote him again, talks about another early Dogen chapter, the Genjo Koan, which is sometimes, uh, the title is sometimes translated, actualizing the fundamental point. This is what uh, Sojin says. The advantage of practice is you can actually practice and experience enlightenment without understanding or knowing anything about it. <laughs> so it's wonderful we can do this. All we have to do is just step in. And he quotes Dogen, when you find your place right where you are, practice occurs, actualizing the fundamental point. And Sojin comments, finding your place right where you are 
means to really completely be right where you are, on your spot in any activity. This is actualizing the fundamental point. So this would seem to be kind of familiar and simple if you're practicing Zen. So vow and faith, when we hear and meet the true Dharma, lead us to renounce worldly affairs. So what is this renunciation for all of us who are you know, not living in a monastery? Can we do this or are we already out of luck here in the first, <laughs> first few lines? You know, early on Dogen wrote a guide to Zazen, which I mentioned briefly at the beginning, called the Fukan Zazengi. The recommendation of sitting, of sitting's uh, meditation for all people. And in this teaching, he speaks of sitting as realization. He wanted everyone to practice sitting and not just monks. And renunciation can always be practiced by remaining with present experience, moment by moment not only on the cushion, but at all other times, right now. We can renounce everything else, but without pushing it away, we just include it as it arises and we practice continuity. You don't have to be a homeless, penniless monk to renounce worldly affairs like this. Right? And we could talk a lot about renunciation as well. Going on though in the text, Dogen circles back to all beings we do not attain the Buddha way by ourselves any more than we vow by ourselves. It's the great earth and all living beings together that attain the Buddha way. And elsewhere in the chapter from which this text is drawn, Dogen quotes an earlier master. So this is, you can kind of get a trace of these earlier writings about vow right within this text that Dogen has written. In, in that uh, quote from the earlier master, that's quoted elsewhere in this uh, chapter, a disciple says, how do you turn mountains, rivers, and the great earth into the self? And the teacher responds, how do you turn the self into mountains, rivers, and the great earth? So is it you who are awakened in the mountains or are the mountains awakened? Is there a difference? Right? We can remember also that Shakyamuni, Buddha, the historical Buddha, simultaneously woke up with the morning star. And this is waking up to one seamless reality. So Dogen goes on, although our past evil karma has greatly accumulated, indeed being the cause and condition of obstacles in practicing the way, May all Buddhas and ancestors who have attained the Buddha way be compassionate to us and free us from karmic effects, allowing us to practice the way without hindrance. So we, here's a stumbling block for some of us, evil karma, our past evil karma. I think this word evil may be, again, like uh, some other translations, is um, not such a good one, not such a good translation. The word evil for us has a, a very heavy feeling. And it also seems like it's something you want to stay far away from or hide or run from. And something that can't be redeemed. You know, we reserve that word for like the worst, right? Just the worst people in our judgment. We don't want to think of ourselves or our actions as downright evil. We kind of shirk away from that. 
The word in Japanese is aku. And Dogen also wrote a fascicle, wrote a, an essay, also in 1240, the same year, which was called Shoaku Makusa. And that's usually translated as refrain from evil, <laughs> right? He comments extensively on an early text that says that to become Buddha, and this may be familiar to, to some of you, the recommendation is refrain from all evil, practice what is good, purify your intentions. This is the teaching of all Buddhas. And so there are other references to this aku as evil. Nevertheless, I think I would rather say unfortunate karma or unwholesome karma. Right? The latter, to me, unwholesome, has the kind of sense of not in accord with wholeness, right? The way thing, when we act in a way that is founded in ignorance and not understanding the way things really are, which is one seamless reality. So evil karma arises from actions that we take when we are not in accord with the way things really are. I think that takes some of the sting out of it. But really karma is neither good nor bad. It's just the results of intentional action manifesting. But it's also not really even so much an individual thing either. We often say my karma or their karma. It's really the results of many intentional actions that are part of the causes and conditions that bring everything into being and co-create our circumstances. You know, it's not so personal as we often think it is. Anyway, the results of past intentional action may cause obstacles for us, but without them, we wouldn't come to practice. If you are living in a completely heavenly realm, like the gods or the divas, you have no opportunity to practice. Right? You're in a bliss realm. Why practice? <laughs> Fortunately, we have the Buddhas and ancestors to help us. Their compassion, which goes hand in hand with their wisdom, can free us from karmic effects. But they don't absolve us exactly. Their teaching can lead us to that leap of faith that Dogen speaks of in the first sentence, like we hear the true Dharma, hard to find, and unfortunate karma or not, we have no doubt and we do not lack in faith. Moreover, the compassion of the Buddhas fills the boundless universe. And again, that sense of vastness comes through, boundlessness, vastness, lifetime after lifetime. So now we come to what is probably my favorite sentence in this text. And here it is, revering Buddhas and ancestors, we are one Buddha and one ancestor. Awakening Bodhi mind, we are one Bodhi mind. So Bodhi mind is wisdom mind, it's awakened mind. And the word Bodhi and Buddha, as you know, share the same root, which is that of awakening, of being awake. Buddha is the awakened one. So this is pointing at non-duality, right? We are the ancestors. <laughs> wow. The ancestors are not in the past. They are not even somebody else. And not only are we not separate from each other, as we usually think, we are one ancestor. We are one Buddha. Next, Dogen offers another confidence statement, which speaks again about time. 
what we think of as time. And this time it's not future lives, which he seems to start with, you know, lifetime after lifetime, um, but past lives. And he quotes an, a Chinese master uh, from centuries before him. He says, this is uh, Lung Ya. The Chinese master Lung Ya says, those who in past lives were not enlightened will now be enlightened. In this life, save the body, which is the fruit of many lives. Before Buddhas were enlightened, they were the same as we. And enlightened people of today are exactly as those of old. So that's a nice confident prediction that this is within the possibilities for all of us. This Lungya, or in Japanese, Ryuge Koton, lived 400 years before Dogen. And he was a Dharma heir of Dongshan, or Tozan Ryokai in, in Japanese. Tozan Ryokai wrote the Song of the Jewel Mirror Samadhi. Anyway, these words again point to our unity with the ancestors. They were like us. We can be like them. Actually, we will be like them. Or we already are like them. <laughs> in a more recent translation by Kaz Tanahashi, uh, he renders this. Um, if you did not attain enlightenment in the past, do so now, right? This kind of continuity of practice is implied in that translation. You know, right now, step in, jump in, <laughs> it's there for you. This confident prediction of enlightenment is an important feature actually of, of Soto Zen. Dogen wrote a whole chapter on, called Prediction, <laughs> that's about this. And then we have this important exhortation, which um, I find useful the older I get. Save the body, which is the fruit of many lives, says Dogen. Now, Kaz Tanahashi now translates that as liberate this body that is the culmination of many lifetimes. So that's another possible understanding of these words. And again, I don't think we need to understand this completely personally, you know, like a body, my body, uh, that individually I have gained from former virtuous human lives, right? Or animal lives. I think we can remember again, this idea of vastness of life, of time, all the creatures, all the worlds, all the beings sentient and insentient that ultimately have led to here and now and are all still present here and now. But to be born human and to be able to practice is a rare and fortunate state. And this understanding is frequently expressed by our Zen ancestors. So save the body. So here again, I want to mention, and I'm coming to the end, um, the Ganmon of uh, this other Chinese ancestor, not the one that Dogen just quoted, by one by a, an ancestor who's, uh, we could say, uh, using his Japanese name, Genkaku. So Genkaku, who lived, I think, about 500 years earlier, um, we have this long text and it's really long. It's like four single space pages. So four times as long as the text that uh, we're looking at by Dogen. And I want to just quote a little bit. I'm kind of editing as I quote. You can get the whole text if you're interested on uh, Kokyo's website. But just to give you a flavor beyond, aside from Lungya of what these vows are, are like. 
that, and, I, and one reason I love Dogen is he's succinct. <laughs> but here's a, a chunk from, from uh, Genkaku. He says, with determined heart, giving rise to the vow, the hotsugan, to practice unsurpassed bodhi, I resolve now to give over this life to reach the completion of true awakening, right? So we have, I'm editorializing here, we have this idea of continuous, endless, vast vow. May I give up a body and receive a body, right? Body after body, lifetime after lifetime. Without having hated enemies, with all living beings, being the same as good friends, depending on valuing Buddha and hearing Dharma, a child of truth leaves home for the harmonious unity of the Sangha. Body after body's clothing, not other than the Kashaya robe, right? The Rakasu or the Okesa. Meal after meal's eating vessel, not other than the alms bowl, the Oriyoki bowls. Bodhicitta, resolute and strong, not arrogant or lazy with deep trust in the true Dharma, diligently practicing the six perfections, reading and reciting the Mahayana, practicing the way, right? That gives you a, a flavor of these earlier vows, right? So they have in common the sense of vastness, lifetime after lifetime, devotion, right? Nurturing your intention. The emphasis in uh, that that uh, we hear in Genkaku is endless vow, endless practice for the benefit of all beings and with deep trust. So we are coming to the end. Dogen says that this practice is the exact transmission of a verified Buddha, right? Which expresses one of his core teachings, which I mentioned already. Practice and enlightenment are one and the same. We don't practice to become enlightened. Practice is enlightenment. So put another way, we practice because we are enlightened. We are Buddha. There's nothing to get. <laughs> There's nothing to attain. Anything we think we have realized, we let go of. We may not even realize what we realize. Suzuki Roshi said that this is going beyond form and emptiness. Emptiness is emptiness and form is form. Finally, Dogen turns to a, another kind of key theme. This is like a really packed uh, page. And um, it links the, to the first sentence's mentions of faith and doubt. And the theme is repentance, right? another giant topic. <laughs> he says, Dogen, quietly explore the farthest reaches of these causes and conditions, as this practice is the exact transmission of a verified Buddha. Confessing and repenting in this way one never fails to receive profound help from all Buddhas and ancestors. By revealing and disclosing our lack of faith and practice before the Buddhas, we melt away the root of transgressions by the power of our confession and repentance. This is the pure and simple color of true practice, of the true mind of faith, of the true body of faith. So for Dogen, repentance and vow go together. And, you know, there are different forms of confession and repentance in Zen and including formal ceremonies. Like we're going to do the Bodhisattva full moon ceremony next week and we do it every month and we confess and repent and renew our vows in that ceremony. 
It's a very ancient ceremony going back even before Buddhism. But the confessing and repenting here, I suggest, is the so-called formless repentance of Zazen, of our primary practice, which is at the root of all of our activity. When we sit Zazen, really sit Zazen, we give up doing. And it is often said, we don't create karma if we are really just sitting. And that's why it is sometimes called formless repentance. And the formless repentance of just sitting is also renunciation, which Dogen spoke of earlier. So what is our lack of faith and practice? When we lose our way, we turn and turn away from reality. The root of our transgressions, our unwholesome karma, is our ignorance, and we melt the root of this lack of faith by practice itself. In another essay in the Shobogenzo, an essay called Gyoji, Dogen says this, and this is another really fundamental teaching and favorite quote of mine. He says, on the great road of Buddha ancestors, there is always unsurpassable practice, continuous and sustained. It is the circle of the way and is never cut off. Between aspiration, practice and enlightenment and nirvana, there is not a moment's gap. Continuous practice is the circle of the way. So the way is continuous practice and we have to continually come back. And here again in this other teaching of Dogen are the Buddha ancestors and their great road on which practice is a continuous circle, uh, which is called Dokan. And the circle is like the succession of ancestors itself in which we have our place. Right? You, you may know that the succession of Buddha ancestors is often represented like a, like a family tree branching, you know, like all of our genealogies with, you know, Buddha at the top and us included in there. We, we actually get this chart when we take the precepts as lay people or priests. But it includes everyone. And there is in fact another way of representing the lineage, not as a chart that looks like a lineal, uh, linear progression through time, but instead as a circle, and actually as a circle. So instead of successors one after the other through this linear time, the ancestors form a circle of which we are a part. So the circle has no start and finish. It has no before and after. It's continuous and it can be entered at any point. When we step in, we're within this circle. And it's an expression of continuous practice. One Buddha, one ancestor. The way is actualized here and now, not in medieval Japan or Tang Dynasty, China. <laughs> so Sojin Roshi said, and I've been thinking of him a lot recently, so I'm ending with a quote from him. Sojin said, even though we don't know everything and don't even realize what we do realize, our practice is complete when we sit with a pure and non-discriminating mind. So you may not even know the complete meaning of your practice. Thank you very much. So if there are questions, comments, uh, objections, you could raise your hand using the, it's easiest if you, if you use the um, raised hand feature under reactions at the bottom.
there are two pages of folks, so I'll try to try to notice you. Is that Mako? Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Thank you for your talk on this particular uh, chant that we do. I just wanted to give a little bit of what a, a short snippet of history about the chant as it's been chanted at Austin Zen Center. And maybe some people who were here before I got here can say what happened with this chant and, you know, in its evolution. But um, the chant that you quoted uses the words confession and repentance and evil. And these are definitely sticking points or have been sticking points in sanghas in the past and probably in the future. And uh, when I first got to Austin Zen Center, the chant was almost unrecognizable to me because it had been altered so much so that evil did not exist in the chant. I can't remember what word was used. And there wasn't confession and repentance. It was a vowel and renewing, which to me felt completely like washed of any kind of like oomph <laughs> of, you know, <coughs> of like actual confession and actual repentance. So, um, so when Graham and I got here as co-tantos in 2013, we both like lobbied <laughs> to bring it back. Let's bring back confession and repentance and let's bring back evil. And, um, you know, we had some, because we were co-tantos, we were able to like really push for that. And, um, and actually when we, we returned to that, I don't remember there being that much, um, naysaying among the, uh, the chanters, um, but for some reason it was, you know, enough that the, the, the actual chant was, was changed around so that it didn't have the same, maybe Christian, Christian overtones or, or something around, you know, like, especially the word repent. I mean, you, you hear that word very strongly in very fervent, uh, ministries, um, which, you know, uh, I know is you know can be very very triggering for people with uh, uh, who've suffered from you know the various abuses of religious institutions and uh, religious um, leaders. So anyway, I wanted to just bring that up and and uh, share that that we we did return to confessing and repenting in 2013. And so far, so far, so good. I think it's actually really. I do think it's really important to to. I think. Um, I'll just confess that when I first heard the Ehekoso Hotsuganmon, I did not like it. And it was actually one of the first chants that I memorized just because I was taking a lot of classes where we chanted it right before the lecture. And so it just got kind of got in me, especially because it kind of stuck in stuck in me in some way. Um, so I didn't really like it when I first started chanting it, in part because I think the, the one line was, um, may they remove their the ancestors remove karmic effects. And to me, that felt like, no, you can't remove karmic effects. That's how we learn is through karmic effects. And actually just really being able to sit with the karmic effects of our, uh, our actions. Um, so, so it really kind of, you know, bothered me in some, in some way, but with working with it over the years, I think because it was troublesome in some sense, I ended up kind of moving a little bit closer to it, like making some space to sit next to it for a while. And I think that, um, I think that that has that, it has that effect on people sometimes that the things that are kind of like, wait a minute, I don't know about that, you know, 
that we 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 open to them a little bit more readily than things. I mean, we we notice them actually, maybe more readily because they're a little bit uh, odd to us. So anyway, I wonder. I wanted to just share that piece of history. Thank you. I think it's some. Uh, I I didn't know that about. Uh, how could I know that about Austin Zen Center? Um, uh, I agree with you, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I think I resonated with this from the beginning in part because I'm have, I grew up Catholic. So confession, you know, is one of the sacraments. We did it every week. Right. Um, and although I fled Catholicism at a certain point, this was one of those things, there's a point of contact and it did help me to kind of reexamine that practice in Catholicism. Like, what is the purpose of this? You know, why do we do it? And, and then also to practice participating in the bodhisattva ceremony or the full moon ceremony. I just happened to come to that the very first day I walked into the Chapel Hill Zen Center and I had Zazen instruction. That night they were doing the bodhisattva ceremony and I stayed because I thought, okay, I want to see what this is about. And I, I thought, ah, oh, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> All of this confessing and repenting and, you know, can I really take these vows? I just got here, but I kept coming back and I kept doing the Bodhisattva ceremony. So yeah, it hits us in, in different ways. We had a big, big debate in Chapel Hill over the word, it used to be all perverted views. And finally, we, we changed it to all inverted views so that people wouldn't get this sense of like sexually transgressive, you know, language. And we've stuck with that one. But anyway, thank you, Mako. And, and I do think that, yes, it's our personal karma. It's the effects of our own actions. And also we are part of this huge web that we can't really see. So um, we just know it's there. And I think some people really have a very hard time thinking that like their misfortunes are the direct result of sins <laughs> that they have committed, you know, and I think that's part of why I like the idea of not dwelling too much on the on the idea of evil karma, but but we can't escape karma. That's the main takeaway. Yeah, thank you very much. Tracy has his hand up. Hi, Tracy. Uh, hi, Choro and everyone. Thanks for that talk. And Mako, thanks for that little history. And I, I, I wasn't around either at that time, uh, but it strikes me that given who the head teacher was at that time and his history as an Episcopal priest. And from my knowing him, his having told me uh, his aversive feelings about the tradition that he comes from and the language that goes with it, how off-putting it is, judgmental it is, that it wouldn't surprise me if it didn't originate in part, not just because of lots of other people having that same reaction, but because he was the guy at the time who was able to shape those sorts of things. Uh, and and for, for myself, I've, yeah, I was one of those who kind of like, this, 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 you know, I don't relate to that language at all. But fortunately, I come from a neutral background. Oh, uh, I guess you call it an atheist household. But no, it wasn't that. It was just that there was no, there was no nothing, <laughs> except for a Christmas tree. Um, and, and and just respect, be respectful toward people, kind toward people. But I've had to for myself and effectively take it on when I've wanted to really make those 
vows and chants come alive for myself to put use some of my own language. Um, and so when uh, repentance, uh, for a while, I was, I would just say, I acknowledge. Yeah. Yes. And I take responsibility for it. Not just acknowledge it, but like, yes, that was me. <laughs> Not in a bad way. Just, uh, yep, that was me. But I would let myself feel you know, to not feel bad about feeling bad, but to say it's okay to feel bad about something that I, when I kind of let myself feel it, I said, yeah, that was kind of hurtful or that was kind of confused or that was kind of harmful. Uh, yeah, like that. That's the repentance part where, and, and, but implied in the repentance is, well, I really don't want to do that again because it's harmful and not nice. Um, but 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 I, but none of there's no kind of any there's nothing punitive in it and the the, the old language can kind of you know, carry some of that so thank you all for listening. I want to put my hand down. Oh, reactions. Okay. <laughs> Bruce, sorry, I didn't realize I muted myself. Go ahead. No, that's fine. Thank you for your talk, True. I always appreciate when we we kind of turn a spotlight onto some of the chants that are more familiar that that we maybe can chant right along with, but have never stopped and and kind of examined at all. And I've got my own you know very strong wordsmithy linguistic kind of karma. So one of the things that's that stood out to me is that this in my in my practice in my experience seems to be unique in the sense that that there's a lot more first person plural here we vow uh whereas a lot of it like like in the full moon ceremony i vow i vow i vow i vow it's it's it's, it's singular and i only now just noticed this but in the after lecture after lecture chant there's a little of both it starts out may our intention extend but then the vowels go back to the singular and I, I don't want to beat this too much in the ground, and and there may be no, it, you know, the linguistic background may be a verb that's neutral that could be translated either way. But some people have made choices, and somewhere along the line, those choices, you know, gain some momentum. And so I, I, I'm I'm curious if you know any more to the story, or if you have any thoughts as well about how how it shapes the 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 intention. Or, or the effect, or the practice itself, when those slight differences, singular and plural, are, are introduced or reinforced in the language. That's a very good point, I think. And um, you brought it out better than I did. <laughs> because uh, if you look at, for example, this one, this one lengthy text that we have, thanks, uh, and now in English, thanks to Kokyo, um, that the emphasis is I, may I, may I, may I, may I, may I. And some of it that I didn't quote, you know, can kind of also has this feeling of maybe rubbing the wrong way. You know, he, he expresses the hope that he will not incur unfortunate or, or disfavored states. And among those disfavored states is that, you know, he will not be reborn as a woman, for example, right? I didn't give you that. But the whole emphasis is on, I want to be able to practice in the most effective way and in certain times and places right there were ways in which you don't want to be reborn in any case um 
there's very much an I there, you know, and it's, I'm making, you know, it's like avowing, all right, I now fully avow, we say, when we're doing the repentances. And it is taking responsibility of several people of, you know, bringing forth, right, individual responsibility, even though I don't think we can ever know the full effects, good or bad, of anything we do, right? We just avow it all. But yeah, the Dogen, the flavor of what Dogen is, is uh, offering is together, all beings, right? All ancestors, it's one, <laughs> it's one thing. So that I think is a, is a very, you know, very particular to Dogen's teaching. We, all, we wake up together and confessing and repenting in this way, all of us, right? No, nobody is exempt from this. And all the Buddhas and ancestors never fail, you know, to offer their compassion and their help. Yeah. So I think it's okay to toggle back and forth like that, though, to, to you know, to, to, to realize I have, in this lifetime, this, this one takes responsibility, but I'm not separate. There's no way. Oh, I, 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 I think not only is it okay to toggle back and forth, I, I, to the extent I have a preference, I think there's, there's value in like seeing it from this side, seeing it from that side. It certainly seems consistent with a lot of teaching. And while, while you were talking, my mind wandered too, because you were, you brought up the line about uh, renouncing worldly affairs. Yeah. And for some reason that, that rang a bell for me with the loving kindness sutra uh, being submerged by the things of the world. You know, not renouncing, not as in rejecting, but, you know, let me not, let me keep my head above water as much as I can. And, and then that leads to this first person, whatever, um, grammatical uh, aspect, because there's so many let one not be, let one be. So then it's third person. So you've got it from, you know, just like, well, let's look at it from this angle. Let's look at it from that angle. And there's, there's, there's value in, in kind of, taking all the perspectives, I think. Yeah, and also to just keep reminding ourselves, we are, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a scholar of these languages and, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm an aspirational student of Dogen and other, <laughs> and all of our Zen ancestors and beyond. So, you know, this is language, right? And how we render these things into our own languages and into our own and translate them also according to our experience in this time and place is always a challenge, right? So we just keep opening it up together and looking back, trying to, you know, I go to the dictionaries, <laughs> I go look up the characters, I try to get a, a sense of what maybe these, these uh, original words were pointing to that might be lost in some of our words. But we also have to be where we are now and given our own uh, personal histories and our own cultures and our own um, ethical and moral kind of matrix that we grew up with, what does it mean, right? And yet these Buddhas of the past were exactly as we are now and we can be like them. So I don't, this is not necessarily, these are not necessarily barriers. They are paths, they're gates which are boundless. <laughs> yeah. Your your last name is a good name for you, Smith. Maybe it should be Wordsmith. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's, that is a login I have used or <laughs> username that does come up. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else?
I'm probably remiss, and uh, I've mentioned my uh, Kokio's uh, contribution to this talk. Um, he and I discussed uh, this, some aspects of this, and uh, also I want to mention Charlie Picorni, um, who has also worked on on this question of these ganmons or Hatsuganmons, uh, and tracked down a lot of references to texts that we don't necessarily have, but at least mention, you know, so and so in whatever century Korea, you know created one of these vow prayers, um, China. I, I, my impression is we don't have so many of the actual texts, but we have enough to know that they existed and they are, they are this kind of traditional form where this sort of vow is expressed. And then I also, before he died, I was able to correspond with Sojin also about this. He at one point was writing a commentary on the Ehe Koso Hotsuganman I, I heard, so I wrote to him and he didn't know who had created this. He'd been trying to find out who created this out of this longer text, and no one seems to know. <laughs> so anyway, somebody will figure it out maybe someday. But in a way, it's just nice to know where it fits into this larger discourse of Buddhism ancestors. Yeah, so, so to acknowledge my indebtedness to others. Thank you, everyone. Well, maybe that's enough. <laughs> oh, John, did you have a question? Thank you, Chora. That was a, was a great talk. And um, I'm glad for your aspirations towards uh, towards Dogen. And uh, it's come out in, in your previous talks as well, in your classes. And I just want to say thank you. It's helped out my practice so much. Yeah. Thank you very um, much. <laughs> you mentioned um, the full moon ceremony, uh, how it predates Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. I don't know much, uh, except that in India, in ancient India, pre-Buddhist India, communities of uh, monks practicing t together Hinduism would come together once a month on the, maybe twice a month even, the full and the new moon, I, maybe. I, maybe someone else who knows more about this than I do could mention what they know, um, to confess to each other as a group where they had broken their vows, um, and then to repent, you know, to vow to, to not to continue on that path, uh, not to continue that way. Um, and uh, so it was something that's, that's continued by Buddhist communities. And I, the thing that's, in some places I've been, like San Francisco Zen Center, there are small group breakouts before the Bodhisattva ceremony where people talk about where they where they went astray in specific ways. And um, that's pretty powerful <laughs> to do that, to actually explicitly avow certain things in a non-judgmental way, just like, well, here's here's what happened this month. <laughs> and uh, and then to go do the come together and do the ceremony together. Um, there's also a practice of uh, in in uh, Soto Zen Buddhism, as we practice it at least, of creating a ceremony where someone is repenting of a very specific kind of heavy duty mistake that really caused harm. Um, and they kind of write their own avowal and uh, it has a form, but they, they state their own uh, contrition, to use a Catholic term, <laughs> for what happened and, and really take a strong vow not to continue that karma. And, and there are people witnessing it. It's not a public thing, you know, like the, like the full moon ceremony. And I think Shohaku Okamura has written about this kind of ceremony. 
So there are many ways in which this goes on. <laughs> but does anyone know anything else about pre-Buddhist forms of this ceremony of the full moon? No, okay. That's all I can say. <laughs> Melanie's, Melanie, you'll be the last, I think. Thank you. So I think about uh, inspiration and passion. And I think, um, I think there's passion in Buddhism. I mean, I feel it that way, but there's something, you know, that impulse or the bodhicitta. And I wonder if you could talk about that because I think that's, um, you know, that to me, the state of the world indicates that we need, um, you know, the confession and repentance. If we think of it as a, we, we're not separate in the great, you know, net and, and that the conditions that we're living through right now are, we can't separate from that. We can't separate from all the dissension and division and everything. And that that's, oh gosh, that's before us. That's our, how do we tackle that? So I think that kind of passion and inspiration is necessary. Anyway, that's an opinion. I don't know if I had a question, but for you, you kind of mentioned that that was really important to you. So I wonder if you could talk about that. Thank you. Thank you for your question. I agree with you about, you know, not separating from what's happening from everything in the world. Um, and uh, I, I think that I'm not sure about the word passion exactly, but I do think that we have to bring effort and energy uh, to bear, you know, that, that that's one thing actually that's spoken of uh, in um, the vows of Genkaku is this, it's a, it's a word that sometimes is, is used about kind of marshalling one's energy, which is sometimes, or conserving one's energy for the right purpose. Sometimes it's apparently uh, applied only to like sexual energy, like remaining celibate in order to conserve that kind of energy and apply it in the right ways. But I think we can see it more broadly, um, you know, and it's linked with not harming. So right effort is part of, you know, the Eightfold Noble Path. And we have to bring intention and energy. We have, how do we direct our effort, right? And, and one way is not turning away, <laughs> right? Not, not, uh, not, not judging and not, and not turning away. So that you can experience that as passion. And I think you can experience the fervor, you know, of these vows, the strength and fervor of these vows. You could use, you could use that word passion as a as a description fervor is a great choice <laughs> thank you there's a message from jeb saying thank you melanie we are all called to honor the sangha how do we define the sangha what are the communities of which we are a part well <laughs> there is no community of which we are not a part <laughs> i would say but maybe maybe someone will give a talk on what is sangha Thank you.